Hey, man, good morning. How are you? All right, let me see if I can get this reset up real quick. I don't know who keeps moving it, but there we go. All right. Acts chapter 5. Actually, we're going to back up a few verses into the end of Acts 4. If you would turn there while you're doing so, let me also explain, as Pastor Maldi said, we try and encourage you to take good notes. At the end of the message, we're going to ask you a takeaway, uh, something that you heard today that you want to apply to your life. And we'll just give you a few minutes to talk about that. And so we're in the book of Acts for a purpose. We're looking at kind of studying what does it mean to be a church. And so you kind of see the, I know it's not really a blueprint, it's more like graph paper, but you, you get the idea. Like we're going with the, what is the church designed to be? How are we created to be as the community knit together by the Holy Spirit called the church? And so uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, there's some on the chairs in front of you. I can even get you there really quick. We're on page 912 if you borrow a Bible. So here's where we've been. We, we see the church in Jerusalem gather as Jesus ascends back to heaven and commissions them with a specific purpose. Then when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they will be his witnesses. They will testify that Jesus is alive that he lived, he died, and he rose from the dead alive today. That their job, empowered by the Spirit, is to be witnesses to that fact. And so what we've seen over the past couple weeks is, or three weeks, is this church grow from 120 people, again, look kind of like this, right? And over, over these chapters that we've been in, they've grown to about 10,000 people inside Jerusalem, now, that's not a, a mega church gathering where they all get together in one place at one time. They gather throughout houses. They go to the local synagogue. They're, they're really rooted in Jerusalem, and they haven't moved outside of Judaism yet. But what we've seen is the Spirit empower them to speak in such a way that other people hear and receive the gospel. We've seen them go out, and when crowds gather around the miraculous things that are happening around them, we've seen the gospel preached, and people converted. And we see as that continues on, even the community itself is a witness to the living Jesus and is leading people to faith. And so we're picking up and kind of this, looking at what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing, there's these two specific things. One is the Holy Spirit brings people to believe in the living, resurrected Jesus. That's the first thing the Holy Spirit's been doing. And the second thing is, brings people into this community called the church, right? That it gathers these believing people, these followers of Jesus into a community called the church. And so here's a very simple main idea for today. And we'll put this up. In fact, I think it's probably our only note today and we'll put up. The Holy Spirit builds a community that empowers the spread of the gospel. Now I want to, I, I, I kept wanting to say it differently. Let me just explain what I'm saying. The Holy Spirit knits together people into a community called the local church. But then the Holy Spirit empowers that community to also proclaim Jesus, right? That that actual community is a witness to Jesus being alive. So not are they only are they empowered as individuals to share the gospel, but the community is a witness to the living Jesus. So the Holy Spirit knits us together just look around the room a little bit. We don't all look alike, right? And we weren't all born in the same place. And we, our first languages aren't all this English or, or 
or the same language. And yet God is knitting us together in a unique way because what is central in our lives is Jesus. And because of that, the main thing is the main thing, and it draws us together. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing here. Now, Acts 4, we're going to start back in verse 32, and it says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, this should sound familiar from last week's reading. In Acts 2, verse 44 and 45, it said this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So here we see that here's what's repeated. They had all things in common, right? They shared the highs and lows of life, all of them together as a community. They're so transformed that they're selling things to care for the community, right? Ultimately, they're caring for the community over the individual, right? They see this community of faith as so unique, as what Jesus commissioned and what the Spirit is doing is as so powerful that their individual lives and goals and things start to get set aside, and they begin to care for the community to the point of some of them are selling land and property, and they're bringing that, and they're saying, listen, let's just care for the church. However, whoever, if people are in need, let's, let's care for them. Well, that's kind of where we're picking up our story today, and we see this as common language. They had all things in common, but what we haven't talked about, yes, is this is a promise that God made hundreds of years earlier, about 700 years earlier, that is being fulfilled now. We'll put this on the screen. Ezekiel 11 says this, and this is God speaking in Ezekiel, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh. God says, I will join this community all together. And what he's talking about is people from all nations and people from all backgrounds. And I will give them one heart. I'll give them all things in common and I'll give them a new spirit I'll take this hard heart out of their chest and I will give them a heart that can beat for God, that can beat for the community. One more, we use this all the time at the end of service, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. I just want you to see this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So what, what is the, the Holy Spirit doing? He's creating, he, Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity is creating community, fellowship, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, right? So this is later than we are in the story when the church in Corinth comes into play. And this is Paul's second letter to them at the end of it. But notice that the Holy Spirit, one of the main things the Holy Spirit does is creates community, right? Not, ju not just friends or community or people that go to the same place at the same time once a week or something, but it knits people together in the gospel, that this common, shared life is what the Holy Spirit uses, knits us together in his power. So verse 32, we'll restart there. Now the full number of those who believe, so there's probably 10,000 of them at this point in history, were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord and great grace was upon them all, right? So the Holy Spirit creates a unique community in the local church, 
And the purpose for the local church is the spread of the gospel. It says the apostles are giving their testimony, their being witnesses, just like Jesus called them to, to share that Jesus is alive. That's the, the thrust of the gospel in Acts, is that the Jesus who died on a cross for our sins is alive today. That's the main emphasis of the gospel in Acts. It's very different than the gospel we often hear today. Jesus did this so that you can be forgiven of sin and go to heaven. Now just say this prayer or whatever, right? It's a very different gospel. It's a gospel about the identity of who Jesus is. And yes, what Jesus has done. And yes, how that applies to us. But that death did not hold him, that he's alive today. Right? That if, if that is true, that, that should be life-altering, changing. That should orient our lives to the only one who has lived and died and rose again and lives forever. That that should transform who we are and what we do. So this is the gospel message that's been proclaimed. And this is the message that is causing people to come to faith. That they are believing in Jesus who is alive. Though he has ascended to heaven... They are hearing this by a transformed community of people who are not doing this in their own strength, but they're empowered by God the Holy Spirit to share this message. See, these two things have not changed in the 2,000 years the church has been the church. Local churches are called to be a group of believers who are empowered by the Spirit to be a community on mission. And our mission is to share the living Jesus with the community, the world we live in around us. We don't have to go to the other side of the planet. We just typically go next door, right, to proclaim who Jesus is. So it says they were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, and as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. So you see this repetition of this deep community shared need right? Someone has plenty and another person loses a job or is going hungry, they're caring for them. To the point of literally, they're selling things just to care for the community of the church, right? So they're living deeply in relationship where the community's needs are greater than the individual's needs, and that they are caring for everyone within it. And there is obviously the, the support that God provides through them, right? Verse 36 says, thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas is an example of someone who sells some land and he lays the money at the apostles' feet. Now, it's culturally different, right? They would come and, and their currency at that point is gold, probably, you know, different coins, but made of precious metals. And and so if you sold something, you literally got a pile of gold or coins or things. You, you literally traded for the deed for your land. You, you got this, this physical money, right? Most of us are super digital. We don't carry a lot of cash anymore. We don't pay a lot of cash for these things. We've really become a part of a digital world, right? And so they would come and bring it. And, and if this is their church gathering, they kind of bring it to the front. It's not about the apostles. It's not about giving it to the apostles. It's about bringing it forward and being a part of their worship right? And so today, typically, we give digitally. It's different. There's not a right or a wrong. If you've been around the church long enough, you've been to a church that like passes a plate or has an offering box or however they do it, 
But as the world has gone more digital, how we give changes, right? But it's not about how we give. It's not about how much we give. It's not about selling things and giving everything. There's no call here for everybody to live a life of poverty and sell all they have. None of that's true. It's about this community that the Holy Spirit is developing. Now, that's important because the next passage is going to be confusing if we miss that point. So the point isn't about a format or an amount, about the financial responsibility. It's it's about the community being shared with one another. So Acts 5, we get into the next kind of the snapshot of the church. It says, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this but at verse 1 kind of pivots the passage, right? So this is what's going on, but now this. So Ananias is a man who owns some field. With his wife Sapphira, they conspire together to sell it, to bring the money, and then present it as if it's the entire price of the field. That's what's going on. Okay, so they're, they're coming to do this and, and pretend, fake, that they're doing like others had done, like the example of Barnabas, all right? Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So why did Satan fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, I want to just pause. There's a few things here. Lie to who? The church? The Holy Spirit. Why? Why the Holy Spirit? Right? Because one thing, one major thing that the Holy Spirit does, that God the Holy Spirit does, is create the community called the local church. The Holy Spirit knits us together to be such a community that to offend or lie to or be fraudulent to the community is to do so to the Holy Spirit. You with me? That the outwork of the Holy Spirit is this special community called the local church. And that to do something to affect, negatively affect that church is, is legitimately to lie to, in this case, the Holy Spirit. And notice he says, why has Satan filled your heart? Right? So here's what we're seeing here. There's, there's two things that we need to understand. One, the local church is of such importance to the gospel that Satan opposes it. Right? That Satan opposed it then and opposes the local church today. Right? Now, just a, a, just a side comment. Probably so much of the local church in America is so ineffective that I'm not sure it takes a whole lot of opposition. I think sometimes we're our own worst enemies here, right? But what I want you to see is by design, that doesn't mean that Satan's not opposing it. I would say absolutely Satan is. But by design, the, the local church, the gospel community is so important that Satan is opposing it. That's what we see, right? And the second thing here is that The local church is literally a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit knitting people together, weaving people that are different together into a body, the local church. And it's so important that Satan opposes it, and it's so much a work of the Holy Spirit that when this takes place, Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart, Ananias, to lie to the Holy Spirit? All right, verse 
Three, so why has he filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Verse four, well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after was it sold, it, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. So here's what's important about this. There is no command to sell your stuff and give it all to the church, right? Giving is taught to be generous. Tithing is taught throughout scripture. Those are a fine. This story is not about that, right? This story isn't about him not fulfilling his financial obligation. And here's what Peter tells him. He says, listen, when you owned the property, wasn't it yours to do with what you wanted? And then when you sold it, wasn't the proceeds of that, wasn't that yours to do with it what you want? Let's just assume that they had already, you know, been giving and doing things and bought it, out of, you know, bought it during that and then sold it. I mean, the money's theirs. At best, they might give a portion of it or something out of generosity. But there's no requirement. There's no failure of you didn't measure up financially. There's no failure of you didn't obey and give. There's no command to live a life of poverty. None of that exists here. See, what's going on is Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they conspire together to sell this piece of property and then go and present it to the church, half the, the money, and pretend that that's all the money. So that they look generous, like maybe like Barnabas. So they look like the community is more important than themselves. But what are they doing here? They are doing it to look good, meaning they're themselves, right? They want to look good, meaning it's about them. And then they keep half the money. All the money was theirs. They had no obligation. But they're just a fraud here. And, and, and they're, they're lying to this community that they're supposed to be bought into, pardon the pun. That they're supposed to belong to. That they're supposed to be, they're supposed to value. So this isn't a story of financial failure and punishment. This is about the community the Holy Spirit creates called the local church. Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So as soon as this happens and Peter calls him out, he dies on the spot. Crazy. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And breathe his last. Okay, verse 7. After an interval, about three hours, his wife came in. This story is not going to go well. You can tell from the beginning, right? After an interval, about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. So she arrives. She doesn't know that Ananias is dead. They took him out, threw him in the dirt, or whatever they did. Verse 8. And Peter said to her, tell me <laughs> whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Yeah, that's legit, huh? Right? Make you think twice about lying in church. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside the husband. They're walking back, right? Whew, another one. You know what I mean? Like, so, yeah. This is a bad day in the Jerusalem church, right? So, why would God do this, right? We have to ask that question, like, why would God do this thing? This seems to us so small, 
Right? It seems like, hey, to be fair, they were bringing money they didn't have to bring. Right? They were bringing X amount of whatever. It was probably a large sum. I don't know what land cost back then, but if they lived in Southern California, it was huge, right? And they're bringing half. But see, they were lying. And not just to the church, but to God, the Holy Spirit, who is knitting the church together. Right? So I just want to, I want you to see this. So Jesus commissions this, this group that it looks this size, right? I can't just, this is where the church started. It looked like this. And, and Jesus commissions says, listen, when the spirit comes upon you with power, you'll be my witnesses. You're the chosen vehicle for the message of the gospel. And the gospel message hinges on the Jesus who lived and died and resurrected and, and is alive now. And Jesus says, you've seen me. You saw me die. You saw me now, right? I'm alive. You'll be witnesses to that. When the Spirit empowers you, because this is not a message, you can just go tell somebody because it makes you sound crazy. Because this doesn't happen, right? And, and, and How? And so this has to be a message that is divinely empowered and inspired. And, and like Pastor Maudie prayed earlier, not just the words that I'm speaking need the Holy Spirit, but the hearts that are listening need the Holy Spirit. Right? This is a, a two-way thing, and that's the very first thing we see when the Holy Spirit falls on the church in Jerusalem as this, they're gathered together in a room, and God causes the, the Christians inside to speak in a miraculous way, in such a way that the people from all nations outside <clears throat> hear all of them speaking in their native tongue. Like, they speak and they understand. That's the message. Right? That God has inspired this community for this purpose. To proclaim God, that others, or to proclaim Jesus, that others may know him. And so that's what we see. That's a, a kind of the first part we kind of hive off. And then these 3,000 people ask, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the same Spirit. It says 3,000 people came to faith that day. The church has this growth to it, this divine growth to it. And the very next words are incredibly important. We read them earlier. And all of them devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to the prayers, right? They gathered together, house to house, and in the temple. They gathered together in the large gathering, and they gathered in homes, and they devoted themselves to understanding the teachings of Jesus as given to them by the people who were with Jesus, by the apostles he sent with the message. They devoted themselves to that. So what we see right after the first massive growth of, growth of the church is what they do and how they live and, and how they embrace this transformed life that they're now living. So this community now is this home base for those who go out, right? And so on the way to do something, as they're going over to the temple to pray, 
Peter and John encounter a man who can't walk. He's never walked. He's 40 years old. He's been lame since birth. He's never walked. And they heal him. And it gathers a crowd together. And a crowd gathers and sees this man that sits outside the temple every day asking for money. They know who he is. And now he's standing. In fact, it says he's jumping up and down. He's praising God. And it draws together a crowd. So Peter, seeing this opportunity, proclaims the gospel to the crowd. And what happens here is amazing, but before anything else, what we see is Peter and John get arrested for the gospel. And and the persecution breaks out for the first time against the church. But after that is what's important. It says, and about 5,000 people after that came to faith. You see, Peter and John and the others are so rooted in this community that is so devoted to one another and empowered around the gospel that the Spirit is using them when they walk outside, when they go down the street, when they go over here, when they go over there, that that God is using them, that the Holy Spirit is using them to speak in the lives of other people who are coming to faith. In between that, we actually see at the end of that, they're devoted to, these, to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to the fellowship and to prayer. We actually see, and it says, and God's adding to their number day by day by day. See, the community, the way they live and the uniqueness of this community, this is also a witness for Jesus. You see, when the people of God live as Jesus has created them, as the, as the Holy Spirit has empowered them to be together, that is a witness to the living Jesus. Right? That, that proclaims the gospel in a way, or at least it proclaims the distinction of those who live within the gospel, that others may see it. And then from that come out people who take the opportunity to share the gospel with other people, and people continue to come to faith. So here we are, we see these kind of growths of the church, and it always circles back to what the community looks like. 3,000 come to faith, we get Acts 2, 42 through 47, telling you what the community of faith does and looks like. They had all things in common, they were devoted to the teaching, prayer, etc. Then we see this persecution break out, and we see an even greater growth of the church, and these 5,000 people come to faith, and what we get is another snapshot that shows you what the life of the church looks like. They had all things in common, they cared for one another, in fact, so much so, they began to sell things just to care for the community. But there was this one couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And what happens is they sell something too. And they conspire together to bring half of it and hold back half of it, but present themselves as giving all of it. And God legitimately strikes them dead. And Peter tells us why. Because Satan has so filled their heart that they will lie to the Holy Spirit, that they will lie to the community of faith that the Holy Spirit is knitting together and working so hard at building. What happens is they're frauds. They're not followers of Jesus. They're, from all we can tell, they're, they're not faithful followers of Jesus. Maybe they go to heaven, maybe they go to I don't. You figure that out. That's between them and God, honestly. But what we see is they're not living as God has called them and taught them to live. They're not living inside the community in the way the community is supposed to be. Instead, they're living as frauds. They're faking it. And God just says, listen, I'm not going to allow this level of sin to infiltrate this young church so early in its life. 
So if God were going to judge us today on how honest and transparent with this community that we are, you know, like, hey, Chris, how you doing? Chris is like, oh, great. He's dying inside. Or how's things? Or, or how are you doing? Or, or where are you in this? Or how's your marriage? Or what? Oh, we're all good, right? Big smiley face. But we're broken. Or if we pretend, hey, we are this, but we're really not. If, if we are putting ourselves in that place, if God was still judging based on this metric, every one of us, how long would it take for this worship service to turn into a memorial service? How long would it take? How many visits would it take me before finally I was just so fake that God said, not enough? Just said, that's too much. You're done. You see, the community that God is building is important. And see, we don't treat the community of faith the local church, not a bunch of local churches, not all the churches, not all, all the people who would gather everywhere, but the community that God is calling you to be a part of. We don't treat that serious enough to make it not one greater than our individual desires and wants and needs, but we also won't give ourselves fully to it. And so in that, in that discrepancy, in that disparity between what we should be and, and what we are doing, what we do is we fake it. And we pretend we're all in. And then we can't see each other until next Sunday. Or we don't care for one another. We hear of a need and I'm, hey, I'll pray for you. Rather than, let's meet that need. Let's figure out how we can solve this problem. Let's, let's seek, seek God together to, to, to help. So here's the question. If God was still doing this, where would we be? All right, hold that in your mind. I'm going to move to the next scene. It starts in verse 11. It says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I bet, right? It says now, so the story shifts, right? Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. It's this giant Solomon's portico, this giant place for gathering, where literally, probably, the whole church could gather. And it says, none of the rest dared join them. But listen to this. But the people held them in high esteem. So now, the story shifts, right? Now we're not inside the church. We're not within the, the, the gathering of those who belong to Christ. But now we, now we work our way out to the churches now in public. And people, other people, non-believers are a part of this. And it says that the apostles are doing signs and wonders. Remember, God is using the apostles, not the whole church, but the apostles to do some unique and miraculous things as they establish the gospel and root that in the world, right? That's the job Jesus gave them before he died even, and then after he resurrected, and uniquely is using Peter and James and John, the others, right? Okay. It says signs and wonders are regularly done among the people. So now the miracles are not happening inside the church. They're happening in the community, Right? Not everybody in the church is going without. In fact, it's taking the sale of land and other things to care for the needs in the church. Right? That blows up modern-day prosperity doctrine, right? Like the church is broke, but God's doing miracles outside of it to establish it. But the church isn't broke because some people in there are making, are, are making some sacrificial things, and, and that God is using that to care for everyone, so everybody is, has what they need. And so it's not about who's in the room 
But what happens is when that, those people go out into the world they live in, and God is trying to root and establish the gospel in that, in that community beyond the people that already believe and are already together. And so God is giving signs to people through the hands of the apostles to show them the validity of their message. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added. Lord, let's just pause there for a minute. And more than ever, wait a minute. So after God just struck two people dead in the church, more than ever, because that's a church growth strategy. Have people drop dead in your church. Like totally, it'll grow your church. It'll trend on social media. It'll be packed next week, right? Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, and Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. They totally worshiped the leaders of the church falsely, right? Verse 16, though, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So the, the gospel's spreading out. Do you see that? More than ever, people in Jerusalem are coming to faith. More than ever. And there's been some massive growth in this young church community, this young local church in Jerusalem. But now it's not only growing in Jerusalem, it says that people outside of Jerusalem and the surrounding villages and the surrounding cities are now bringing people in because they're hearing about what's going on with the church in Jerusalem and they want part of this. More than ever, believers are added, and people are gathering from the towns around Jerusalem, verse 16. Right? They're coming now to the church. Take that in. A couple of people die in the church, and it explodes in growth again. And that's because the church is living in such a unique way, empowered by the Spirit, and then living on mission to proclaim the living Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, that it keeps growing that people are believing, people are starting to come to them. They're not even sending out missionaries. People are just coming to them. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So we get this other, okay, but introduces our next section, right? So we had first the church had all things in common, but Ananias and Sapphira. Here's what it's supposed to look like. Here's what happened. But these people didn't live there. Okay, now the people are flocking to the church in Jerusalem. They're coming in from other cities, other places, but the religious leaders in Jerusalem don't like it, right? Remember the people that arrested Peter and John last week still don't like it this week, right? They have not changed. They still are opposing this message because the center of power, at least in followership, has shifted from Judaism to Christianity. <clears throat> and so the religious leadership over here is losing people as they begin to follow Jesus over here. And it's, it's jealousy and it's anger. I mean, it says it outright what the problem is, right? Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Notice the capital L, reflecting Jesus, living Jesus. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Last week, they're told, hey, you can't talk about Jesus anymore. They continue. Then they're arrested for it, taken to jail, and an angel lets them out of jail and says, go stand in the temple. You know, where the guys that are mad at you, where they preach from. 
Go stand in the center of the temple and proclaim Jesus. And what do they do? Like, hey, listen, we keep getting arrested for this thing. We probably should stop. No, they're like, on it, right? We're going to go do this. Verse 21, second half of it says, Now when the high priest came, and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought out. Love to see that guy's face. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain of the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. I love that line. So they went and arrested them again, but really nicely this time. Because <laughs> they feared the people rising up and stoning them. Literally, throwing rocks at them until they were dead. That's what they're fearing, right? They're afraid of the community that's supposed to follow them, but is hearing and seeing something in these followers of Jesus they haven't experienced before. This community is so different. These words are so powerful. Acts 27, I mean, verse 27. And they had brought them, and they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. If you remember from last week, just back in chapter 4, it says that the rulers and elders called Peter and John and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, this is verse like maybe 22-ish, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't stop talking about Jesus who died here and then rose again to life. We've seen him. And you cannot convince me to not say something. Right? Either I'm going to be obedient to God or I'm going to be obedient to you. And God raised him from the dead. He wins. Like, we're going with that. And besides, you see with those two people, what happened to those two people? They're not in line for that, right? Like, we want to be on the right side of this conversation. We want to be faithful to the gospel. We want to be faithful to what the Spirit is doing here. And notice it said, listen, you've, like, your message is filling Jerusalem. Like your message isn't contained in this little kind of group over here that's really not a nuisance. Your message is filling this entire massive city, which was the hub of Judaism until you got here, or until you started speaking about Jesus. And notice what they say about the message they've been proclaiming. And you're trying to pin the death of Jesus on us. Now, to be fair, it's totally on them, right? They put him out to be crucified. They got the crowd chanting, crucify him, crucify him, what, well, what? Well, here, here's this murderer, <clears throat> Barabbas, and you guys have a habit of taking a prisoner and being delivered and set free during the Passover, and who do you want? Jesus, who we find no fault with, or Barabbas, the murderer, and they're like, set Barabbas free, crucify Jesus. So yeah, they have a level of guilt in this, for sure. They shouted for his death. But I mean, so do we, right? Our sin. We're the reason Jesus came and, and, and lived and died and had to be raised from the grave, it's, it's us, right? We'll talk about that in a second, but you understand that the, they heard the message. 
And it wasn't flowery, it was focused. It was pointed at them, and it has to be pointed at us. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. (laughs) Yeah, this is not a seeker-sensitive message that they're preaching, right? God raised him from the dead. The emphasis of the gospel in Acts is that Jesus is alive. The emphasis of the gospel in our lives must be a living Jesus. Jesus that lived and died and rose again. Right? Paul says, apart from the resurrection, we're wasting our time. We should just sleep in and take Sundays off. Right? But if Jesus is alive, we need to hear this. And so here's the message. There's a God who created you, loves you, designed you, made you. And your design is to live a life that brings glory to God and God alone. And you and I, we've all failed that. We've all failed. Um, Give us just a couple hours. We'll fail again, right? The opposite of Ananias and Sapphira want to bring glory to themselves. Our lives are spent, should be spent bringing glory to God. And anything that doesn't bring glory to God, we call that sin. We choose ourselves over God or we choose whatever it is over God. That's just, that's sin. No matter what it is, how big, how little, it just is. And because of that, our sin has defiled us and broken us to where we are today. And and a holy God, a God who made us, that we have rejected by rejecting what he has told us, that God says, okay, now you're separated from me. But that God still loves us. See, the God who designed us and made us loves us. And because we are separate from God, because of our sin, because a holy God cannot be around a sinful people, God becomes flesh in Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becomes flesh and lives among us and lives the life that we were called to live, but we reject God. He never rejected. He lived a life fully glorifying God in his life. And then to pay the penalty for our sin, he had to die and suffer the wrath of God. That he had to take the penalty of those of us who will put our faith in Jesus. And so he lived and he died. And then as he covers our sin, in order to give new life, he had to raise from the dead. Because a dead Jesus may have forgiven sin, but it wouldn't change our lives. We'd be the forgiven versions of the jacked up people we were. Trapped. But the resurrection is new life for you, for me, for all who are in Christ. And that our response is his faith. That we trust that he has paid the penalty. And then we turn and live inside. Faith is not just mental assent to a fact. Faith is living towards that end. And what we get in the first century church, what we get is a glimpse of what it looks like to live transformed by Jesus. That, that we start to become a part of a community that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to be knit together. That becomes more important than ourselves. And that we live in this community so that we can go out into the world we live in and share the message of the living Jesus. Our lives of focusing on ourselves is what pulled us away from God, and the opposite is the call of faith. And this is done by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. This is not a thing you and I are capable of doing, of laying down our selfishness and self-glory and self-pursuit, but rather this must be a work of the Spirit. 
And so it calls us to a community that will study God's word, that will fellowship together, that will take the sacraments of communion and baptism and have meals together and pray together, right? That's why we're gathering together tonight at six to pray because we need it. Because God says so, which should be enough. Well, because we need it. And we want to pray that our message goes out. We want to pray for our church that God would bring us together. That's the response. It's a response to the gospel. That we will live empowered by the Holy Spirit through the power of the resurrection to be a new people. Where the community becomes the community, the local church becomes more important. Where others become more important than ourselves. A a particular others. We live within this community. And the world becomes our mission field. And it is not a life of denial. You don't have to sell everything you have and be broke. You can enjoy the world we live in on mission to reach the lost with the gospel. You can enjoy the world we live in as we gather together as the people of God who worship Jesus together, open his word up to figure out, okay, what is he calling us to and what are we not doing that doesn't look like that? We can enjoy this life. In fact, I'll suggest to you that there's more joy in this life in the life of living for Jesus and living for the church and living for his mission, then there is joy in anything outside of that. It is fraught with hardship and struggle. We see this, but nothing is better. Living to the truth of the one true God, and there is nothing better. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells the church, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That we overcome sin and death and the law. And we begin to live in freedom because of Christ. Because Jesus is alive and his spirit lives within us. And that is the call of every believer. Verse 31. Peter continues, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, he's not saying just to Israel, but he's speaking to Jewish religious leaders. So he's calling them to what Christ calls us all to, and that is repentance. He says to give repentance and forgiveness. See, if you have not turned towards Jesus, you're not living in repentance, then forgiveness is a question. Jesus promises to forgive all those who are in Christ. He also promises that all those who are in Christ and, and receive that symbol of being in Christ, baptism, that all receive his spirit. And so you can't have all of this and all of that and make it some of these. That all of us who are in Christ will be living towards that end. Not to earn our salvation, but in response to it. But because Jesus has so transformed us, by his resurrection from the grave and his empowering us with his spirit, that we will change how we live. It becomes the proof of what we believe, not the earning of anything. It's our response to the goodness of Jesus, to the mercy and grace of God, to the indwelling life of God, the Holy Spirit. It's our response. We begin to live in a different way, in a way that if you are not a follower of Jesus, you can't understand. It's one of those, if you know, you know. Because it's different. And it will show up, not overnight, but over time. We will begin to be a different people. When we continue to live in the same way, the same call is required. Repent. 
Verse 31, God exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior. Leader and savior. We use the language here of Lord and savior. If you believe in Jesus as your savior to forgive your sin, but you do not give him lordship over your life, he's not your savior yet. You with me? He can't be just kind of in. He's either God who's in charge or he's not. He's either Lord and Savior or he wants to be your Lord and Savior. So you don't get to pick and choose. That's what got us in this problem to begin with. We either live the way he's called us to live or, let me say this, because we're all imperfect and we all fall short of that, we strive to live towards how he has called us to live or we're going the other direction and we need to have a different gospel conversation. Verse 32, Peter goes on, he says, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You hear that? Who's the Holy Spirit empowered? Those who repent. Those who obey. Those who follow. It's not a one for one. You don't earn it. You don't do this. It's, it's here's how I know you're in Christ, because I can see it. Paul says you confess with your mouth. You believe in your heart. James says you can say all you want to. I will show you what I believe by how I live. Because if we continue to live for ourselves, we have to back up a step and ask questions about our trust in Jesus. Remember Jesus' words before ascending alive into heaven, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things. The church is living out its mission. The church has become the community it's been called to and God is sovereignly protecting it at this moment. It's going to go take a hard left at some point. But Ananias and Sapphira just got there too early, and God wasn't having it. Because this community matters for the sake of the gospel. And we need to understand that more. How important the local church is to our lives, and how important we are to the lives of the others in the room. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. That's exactly how every preacher feels often. (laughs) they're not coming to faith here in this moment right now, right? They're not loving his message because this means a denial of everything that they are, just like it calls us to deny everything that we are and live for Jesus. And they're not really having it. Verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Gamaliel's amazing and, and wise, not a Christian, but he's wise. So they excused him. Verse 35, and he said to the men of Israel, take care about what you're to do with these men. For before these days, Theodius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For this plan is, or, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. For a man who never followed Jesus, he sure understood what was true. Listen, you might find yourself on the other side of God here. If this is a work of man, leave it alone, it'll go away. Well, here we are, because this is a work of the Spirit, not of man. Verse 39, the second half, it says, So they took his advice, 
Verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This time, not just a rest, but a beating came with it. Verse 41, then they, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for dishonor for the name, meaning for the name of Jesus. Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Do you hear that? They beat them, and they leave, and they consider themselves blessed for suffering for Jesus. Because that's what we would do. Jesus, we got this one right as we limp and bleed, right? Just think about the things we complain about. Evidently, you've identified some things. Okay, I'm going to move on. All right. Okay, what do we do with this? What do we do with this message? How do we take this? Because we know we're guilty of the things Ananias and Sapphira did, even if we did it in different ways. We know we have not been genuine. And we know we're not living on mission the way we should be living on mission. We know we don't put the church in the right place, that others in the community, that we value this because we know it is the chosen vehicle to get the message of the gospel out. And, and we, don't, we don't live in it the way we're called to live in it and, 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 and admire and, and follow <clears throat> and uphold the gathering of the saints together in the way that, that we're called to. We know that. We know we choose ourselves more than we choose the others in the room. We know we live to our own goals and fit church in where it fits, not where it should be. We know that. And we know we would not suffer like this. I mean, maybe one of you, but I'm not that good. We know that we don't live this way. So what do we do? I'm going to put this on the screen, and I want to just... I just want to kind of get a point out. Here's what happens as those thousands come to faith. It says that they, those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. That's what happened when they came to faith. This is what, this is what they did. We got a repetition of this in chapter 4, Right? says, now when the full number of those who believe, can you just leave that up there for a minute? Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart, one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. It says, then they left the presence and they thanked God that they were able to be beaten, that they were able to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. So here's all I can come up with. Somehow we're stuck between verse 41 and verse 42. See, many of us have received his word and have been baptized, and have added to the people of Jesus. But we struggle to live the way Jesus has called us to live. We're not devoted to the teachings we're hearing. We're not devoted to the fellowship of the church. Remember, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We're not devoted to the community the Spirit knits together. We're not devoted to the sacraments, treating them seriously, and the, and the, and the breaking of bread we do. And we're not devoted to prayer as a community, nevertheless on our own. So somehow we're living in between verse 41 and verse 42, never faithfully getting all the way 
to where God has called us to be. So here's my challenge today. How is this us? Us collectively. And of course, we have to ask, well, then how is this me? How am I trapped between verse 41 and verse 42? And how must we move to what we're called to? The community that Jesus called us to is what the Holy Spirit uses to grow us into the witness we are called to be, to the life we're called to be, to the mission we're called to. So what applications will you make? Consider the following categories. That is, I found myself working on, I find myself working on the church community, but not living in it sometimes. Spending my time on it, but not just living and resting in it. That's my application. That's my challenge this week to live out. So I'm going to change our categories that we normally do. I'm just going to say Christians. All of you, if you're in Christ. Are, are you only repenting of sin? If you are, are you also repenting of this world? Are you repenting of living like everyone else? As well as the sins you can see in your life. Non-believers, the gospel calls us not only out of sin, but out of the world. Yes, it calls us to change behaviors that are antithetical to Christ, but it also calls us out of the world and into a local church to live in such a way that is designed to be different that empower us to live on mission. And parents, what gospel do we preach our kids? Is it mixed with worldly values or is it fixed on living a life for Jesus that sets aside the world we live in? As Jesus says, if anyone would deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Right? Whoever seeks to save this life is going to lose it. Whoever seeks to lose this life will save it. You'll be with Jesus forever. So, our takeaways. What is something you heard today that you want to apply to your life this week? Take a few minutes and, and just turn to one another and share. Well, I'll give us like three, four minutes maybe. That's your question. What is your takeaway for the day?